Now, this morning, we're in week two of our series called Letters, where we're taking a deep dive into the book of Ephesians. And if you're familiar with this, maybe you're not, you see the New Testament is made up of a lot of these letters. And these letters were written to groups of people. They were written to churches that give instruction or explanation on how we can live a godly life. Ephesians is all about the uh, talking about the church and what it means to live as God's chosen people or to live as God's children. But before we dive into the text today, I want to set the stage with this. As I look around us, it's very evident that we live in a before and after culture, right? This concept of before and after is everywhere we turn from infomercials to uh, things trying to get you to sign up for stuff. And so here's an example from The Biggest Loser. If anyone remembers that show, this is Alfredo here and you see the before and the after. What an amazing transformation that we see there. We see it a lot when it comes to remodeling homes. And so here's a home that the exterior has been completely transformed. I love that, getting rid of the old iron. I think it looks classy and looks amazing. But you can see the before and after. And we show those pictures as well when we redo the inside, such as a kitchen. And here's a before and after of one of our staff members who've worked really hard. This is their kitchen before. And this is their kitchen after. Well done, guys. That looks, looks amazing. And of course, my favorite before and afters are car restorations. You can take a look at that. Started with a half a car and made it into this beautiful machine that you see there on the bottom. But the reality is, is this before and after is all over our culture, right? The before picture is really terrible. And actually, it's unflattering. And then the after picture is the amazing, most beautiful picture that you can ever see. And this is the world that we live in, especially on social media. We want to paint the after all of the time. But I have one more before and after for us. Here's a before. (laughs) You're welcome. That is before Cody, fourth grade Cody, and after. You can choose if that's good or bad, which one's unflattering, but that's not so awesome um, in that picture. But anyways, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to jump into that today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, which is on page 704 if you're using one of our Bibles. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible with you, if you would just raise your hand, the ushers will bring you one of our Bibles and you can jump in with us on page 704. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep this as it's, we want you to have God's word in your life. But you may actually be surprised as we dive into scripture here to see that the Apostle Paul actually utilizes this before and after technique. Because in the passage we're going to read, we're going to take a look at life before experiencing Jesus and life after accepting Christ and how that should change everything in our lives. And so I want to start today with the end in mind. So let's start with Ephesians 2.10. Let's jump in together. Paul says these words. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. Some translations will say we are his worksmanship, or it's this idea that Paul is alluding to, and he's saying here that we are handcrafted by God, we are one of a kind, and that we have been brought to completion, and it is perfect, and it is right, and is just as it, as it should be. It's this idea that we are made complete in Christ Jesus. You see, and I think for us to fully appreciate this idea, we have to know where we came from. 
And that's what Paul's getting to in the beginning part of chapter 2 of Ephesians. So let's look at this together, the before and the after. So Ephesians 2, starting verse 1 and 3, this is the before. Listen to what Paul says. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passion, the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. You see, the before description, it's not very flattering like we talked about. And I'm not sure it could actually get any worse than that. And I see a couple key points here that Paul is trying to help us see as we look at the before Christ picture. And the first key picture is this. You were captive, right? We all, we're captive to the world, to our flesh, to our environments, to the culture that is around us. We're captive to our sin. And the the thing is, is that the world glamorizes sin. Culture glamorizes sin and it makes it seem normal. And you don't really have to look any further than your favorite streaming platform or social media to see that. And so here, Paul is issuing us this warning. And I wonder, well, why is that? Why does Paul issue this warning? It's because if we live our lives according to culture, according to the shows, according to the world, we are going to be held captive to those very things. And the second key picture here that he shows us is that we were dead. We were dead. You see, that's the reality of the sin that's in our lives. In the book of Romans, the same author, Paul here, he says that, tells us that the wages of sin is death, right? The wage is something that we earn. I think about when I go to work, I go to work and I earn, I get the wage. That's what I get for what I had done. And in the same way, he says that the wages of sin is death. It's the moral condition that humanity is in, that we're separated from God and we are spiritually dead. That's the state of all of mankind. Later in Romans, Paul acknowledges this in chapter 7, verse 24. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And that's not just Paul. That's us. We are dead men and dead women walking. Because of my sin, I deserve death. It's the wage that I have earned. No matter if I grew up in the church or not, whether I had this huge life crisis or this addiction that had a hold of me or this hardship, we all have sinned and fall short of what God expects from us. And we all need Jesus, right? And when we don't acknowledge this, when we don't acknowledge our need for Christ, we end up with a bunch of believers trying to look like Jesus, but smells like death. Now, do you ever get cravings? I don't know about you guys. I've been getting some weird cravings lately. In fact, they're so weird that I'm starting to wonder if I'm not pregnant. Because it's things like, I'll be talking with my wife and I'll be like, Kristen, do you know what sounds really good right now? And she'll be like, what? Where where are we going now? And I'm like, chocolate. Well, that one's not very weird. And and so I run out and I get a Snickers or Three Musketeers. And and then later, maybe a couple days later, I'm like, Kristen, do you know what sounds really good? And she's like, chocolate? And I'm like, nope, McDonald's. Like, who says McDonald's sounds good? There's something wrong with that. Or I'll be like, Kristen, do we have any peanut butter in the house? And she'll be like, peanut butter? Yeah, of course, why? And I'm like, I'm really craving a peanut butter and pickle sandwich. 
And whatever my craving is, you see, I give into it and I run out and I go get it because my cravings drive my behavior. Because that is my mind and my body's response to thinking that I'm missing out on something. And this is our life before Christ. We are captive to the things of this world because we think we're missing out on something and we just can't help ourselves. Many might say, well, that's not me anymore. I'm not struggling with that right now, Pastor Cody. And I would say, great, praise God for that. That's amazing that you're not. But if we start to forget what it was like before, we're going to run into problems. And this is the very warning that Paul is sharing with the Ephesians. Paul is saying, don't forget who you were. Right? And as I survey the culture, as I look around, I see much of the church is angry right now, angry with each other, angry with the broken state of the world, angry with politicians for whatever reason, angry that people are still living in their sins saying, why can't they just get their act together? Angry at the jerk who cut them off in traffic or the person who gives them the one finger wave driving down 41st on Saturday, you know who you are, right? Whatever it is, you'd say, well, I would never, but I have news for you. Yes, yes, you would. And yes, yes, you did. You see, look at the second part of verse three. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Some translations here will read, object of God's wrath. That's a pretty helpless place to be, right? And wrath is just a churchy word talking, for, uh, talking about God's holy and perfect anger against sin. And we don't talk about wrath enough, I think, in the church. And I think that's because it's an opposition or it's opposite of God's love. And the reality is we need both wrath and love for each other to work together because God can't be completely loving if he doesn't hate the things that rob life from him. If he didn't care, there wouldn't be any wrath. But God loves us so much, he is angered with what hurts our relationship or threatens our relationship with him, uh, even when it's our own foolish cravings, that he provides a way out. Now, many of us are there now struggling with that, but all of us have been there. Paul says, we all are objects of God's wrath. We all were objects of God's wrath. Now, I don't want to be just a downer all day long, all morning long here, but I want to look at now the after, because this is the beautiful picture, right? The before is unflattering. Now let's look at the flattering and the beautiful, the after. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loves us so much that even though we were dead, because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Right? It begins with one of the great words of Scripture. And we see it all the time as we're reading through Scripture. We'll be reading along about maybe how bad things are going. And we start to feel hopeless or maybe a little helpless. And, and, and discouragement starts to settle in because we can relate to the things that we're reading. And we say, oh, that's not fun. And, and maybe even begin to feel a little overwhelmed because I begin to realize how far from God I am, how far from his standards I am. But then we come across this one word the word but. But you are without, you are not without hope, but there is more. But then God. Listen, scripture is full of big buts, and I like them, and you should too. 
Because we see in scripture that we were dead in our sins. We were objects of God's wrath. We were separated from our heavenly father. But God, who is so rich in mercy, but God, who loved you so much that even though you were dead, he gave you life through Jesus Christ. His love reached down to you and changed or can change your life forever. You know, it got me thinking There's a lot of words and phrases that are out there that catch our attention. And sometimes there's these new words or these new phrases that catch our attention. But more often than not, it's old words recycled to mean a new thing that catches our attention. Or at least it does in my house. I live with three teenage boys and my wife, and uh, they have introduced me to a wide array of slangs and sayings and words. Now, keep in mind, I'm 44, so I might be a little out of touch, but listen to some of these. I'm going to give you two examples that I've learned over the last two months with my family. The first is drip or drippy, right? When I hear that, I think that's the leaky faucet that keeps me up at night. And my boy said, oh, no, 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 dad. That's when you're rocking a style. That's when you have a little swagger. That's when something's awesome. So I guess I could say that this Broncos t-shirt's pretty drippy this morning. Or the second is chopped. To me, that's something we do to prepare dinner, or it's like a karate move, right? Anyone with me? Well, it turns out that chopped actually means that something is overrated or underused. And so I guess you could say that the Kansas City Chiefs are chopped. Either way, these new phrases, they grab our attention. And as a result, I think we tend to overlook phrases that are familiar, that we've heard time and time again. We assume that we get it. We assume that we understand it. We assume that we're good. And I see this all the time in the church, and I think it's actually a danger for us. And so I want to challenge us to hear a word today as if we've never heard it before, as if we're hearing it for the very first time. And that word is grace. Grace. Right? We've all heard it before. We live in the Midwest. It gets used. We hear it in church circles. But I feel like we miss the power of it. And scripture actually tells us to make sure that people understand the power of it. Listen, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Right? And that's my prayer today. That's the prayer for leadership inside of your church, inside of Ransom, is just that, that no one would miss God's grace. Now, we need to see this and we need to understand that grace isn't just some blessing that you pray over your meal at dinner time. Grace actually means the freedom for captives. It means that those who were once dead are now alive because they've accepted the gift that God has offered them. But this is where people get derailed, right? We put our faith in Christ and we know that scripture says if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation and we celebrate that. But somehow we begin to think that it is our job to create that new creation, that it's our job to make that happen. And so we try to follow all the rules. We try to be good enough on our own merit. We begin to compare ourselves to others and say, well, they're a believer and I'm so much better than so-and-so. Do you know what they do? And we continue down that road and it is really ugly, but we're trying to justify or bring about that new creation. But all we've really done is we have the truth of God, but we've removed the grace of God. Because grace is where God gives us what we don't deserve. When the world looks at you, do they see God's grace? You see, that's my prayer for me and for my family, and as I've prayed many times for you, for the church, 
is that when the world looks into our eyes, when they interact with us, that they would actually see Jesus, that they would taste his goodness, that they would see that there's something different and they would long for more because of these transformed lives. So please don't overlook the power of grace. Grace takes someone like me who was an object of God's wrath and makes me a child of God without doing anything to deserve it. Let's keep reading verse 9 and 10. For it is by grace, it is by what? By grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is the heart of God. This, is, this passage houses the incredible simplicity of the gospel, that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die and to offer us salvation by grace, to offer a relationship with him by grace. And all we have to do is have faith. That is it. Which leads me to the question tonight, today as we close. Why? Why would God do this for me? I mean, I, after all, we just saw that because of my cravings, I was the object of God's wrath and the before was so ugly and so nasty. Why would God send his son to die in the place of a sinner, to die in place of me? I didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't do anything for God to do that. I don't even deserve it. So why did he do it? Because God starts with the end in mind. Remember, we started this morning looking at the end, Ephesians 2.10. Let's come back to that. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. When did he plan them? Long ago. You see, we've come full circle. We started with the end in mind, and now we're ending back up here because ultimately that's what God does. But most people will memorize verses 8 and 9, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. But we leave out the miracle of verse 10. We miss the rest of what Paul is saying. Why did God do this? Because God sees a masterpiece in your mess. See, when God looks at you, no matter where you've been, no matter what's happened in your life, when he looks at you, he doesn't see who you are. He sees who you are becoming. And you're becoming a person who was created for a purpose. Every one of us is created for a purpose. And according to verse 10, we are not saved by our works, but by his grace, by God's grace for his works. We're saved to fulfill God's purpose here on earth. We aren't called to do good works out of some um, obligation or need to do enough to impress God or to find a way to heaven. No, 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 no. We are called to do the good works that God had already planned for us long ago, the things that he made specifically for us to do as his masterpieces. And we must understand that. I want to share with you a little bit of my before and after story. Because you see, it's easy to assume because of a because I'm a pastor that uh, everything's been perfect, or that I grew up in the church. And so, let me let me just tell you a little bit about my story with Jesus. See, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up going to church. My family, my parents weren't even believers, 
And so I knew nothing about God. But what I did know is that living in a small town, for anyone that understands, a town of about a thousand people outside of Denver, living in a small town, your identity uh, is easy to form. You can control that. Um, especially if you are an athlete or you're really good at, say, singing and performance, you're able to do these things and you shape your reputation. It's easy to be known. It's easy to carry a family legacy. It's easy to do these things. And guess what? When you're young and your identity is wrapped up in those things, uh, it becomes something you chase and something you crave. And so fast forward, I have this identity as being an athlete and being, being a tubes. And it's fun as you walk through the store and someone would stop you and say, great game. And, and the identity was, um, I was a little bit of a screw off in, in school. And, you know, I was always in detention here and there for things. And, uh, coaches hated it because it made me run, but you were just kind of known for those things. And that becomes your identity. And you, 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 you hang on to those things. But then I get to college and guess what? Nobody cared I was Cody Toops. No one could give a rip less about the things I had accomplished or done or participated in. And when that is your entire platform of who you are, it crumbles in a moment's notice. And I found myself in an identity crisis, if you will. We heard Pastor Phil talk last week in the sermon about how the majority of the world is looking for nothing more than their identity. And that was me. See, but fast forward, I got introduced to Jesus, albeit I was on a retreat, college retreat at Johnson Lake, Nebraska, if anyone knows where that is, for all of the wrong reasons, but God got a hold of me. And I remember very specifically that night, the pastor talking about that our identity is, is that we are child of God or that we're his masterpiece. And I began to think about that. And he began to share the gospel about how much God loves us and that he sent his son to die when we didn't have our act together. And that it is a gift that's available for us to take if we're willing to do that. And I remember on that night laying on the dock as after midnight, staring at the stars and saying, okay, God, if you are who I was told you are, I'll give you my life. You're in control and I give everything to you. And in that very moment, as I surrendered to Jesus, my identity I'm a child of God. Now, fast forward, there's works that he has for me to do. And those works look like working in the banking industry and helping my family to lead them and point them to Jesus as best as I can and, and now serving as a pastor. But all of those things never change my identity. I could be doing all kinds of other things and my identity is still that I'm a child of God because it's not dependent on what we do for him. We are saved by what? By grace. And so maybe you're here today and you've never fully surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never fully said, God, you're in control and you want to give God control of your life for the very first time because you realize there's nothing you can do to earn it. I want to say it's here. It's here for the taking. God's grace is bundled up in a gift and it's ready for you to unwrap and take today. And your identity is that you are a child of God. You're not a screw up for these decisions. You're not this. You're not that. You are a child of God of God. And if you want to give your life to Jesus today and you're hearing about all those things, would you just pray with me today? Father God, I am I'm in awe of who you are and what you have done in spite of the things I've done. Lord, I'm so thankful that you see me as a masterpiece 
and that you love me and you care about me so much that in spite of these things, you sent your son to die for me. And so this morning, Lord, I give you my life. I say, you are Lord, you are in charge. And I believe in you. I believe you came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died and rose again. And so today, God, I hand my life to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.